a lot has happened in our country since last Tuesday. Um, things I never thought that I'd see in my life. What does one say about these things? Um, I've been struggling with that. There's, there's, there's so much that could be said. Um, I, I honestly haven't known where to begin, but um, what happened at the Capitol on Wednesday was, uh, man, there's just a range. It feels like a range of things from like petty and ridiculous all the way to monstrous. And in general, I was really discouraged by the entire thing. And um, I was horrified by the brutal murder of a police officer and others losing their lives. And I was really disheartened to see people involved in the crowd holding crosses and, and posters saying things like Jesus saves. And I don't know what those people were there for. It's st I'm still not <laughs> real clear on what exactly happened or who did what, and I'm not sure anyone is but I have a hard time with Jesus's name and the church in any capacity being associated with pretty much any of what went down. And some of the dominoes that have fallen in reaction to those events of Wednesday have been equally concerning and frightening. It's been a month of a week. So it feels like maybe the most appropriate thing to say is, um, I hope you will join me in continuing to pray for sanity and for peace and for justice in our country and in our government. Um, our hope rests not in any political party or person, but in the God who is love itself. If you want to talk about any of what's going on or just vent about it, um, hit me up. I'm, I'm here for it. Um, I would love to listen. Um, so I, I, I wanted to address all that, but I also don't want it to cloud our entire time together. So we're gonna set that aside for the next few minutes, okay? Because there are other things that I want to talk to you about. Um, the first being um, selenium. <laughs> how's, how's that for a segue? Um, just hang with me. Um, selenium is an element that you can find here on earth. It's on the periodic table of elements. Um, and it has this really rare and unique quality called uh, photoconductivity. So, you know the difference between an insulator and a conductor, right? A conductor, like metal, allows electrons to pass through it, so it conducts electricity. An insulator, like rubber, doesn't allow electricity to flow through it. Selenium is an insulator. It won't conduct electricity. That is, until light shines on it. <laughs> when light hits selenium, it begins to allow electrons to pass through it. It becomes a conductor as long as light continues to shine on it. That's freaking weird and awesome. Uh, and you're gonna have to just trust me on this. I think it's gonna be a helpful metaphor for us tonight um, as we get into 1 John. Um, so just hold on to that little chemistry lesson for a minute, okay? I promise it's not just the most random thing you've ever heard. Uh, as I said at the beginning tonight, we're starting a series on the book of 1 John, which again is one of the lesser known books of the New Testament. Um, so I want to give you some background on, on what this book is all about. Uh, 1 John was written sometime around 100 AD, give or take a decade. Uh, it's technically a letter, but it reads much more like a bulletin or a paper or a monograph um, in which a pastor from within the Johannine community writes to the larger Johannine community of churches in Asia Minor that are all splintering over arguments over the true nature of reality and life. And this pastor urges both sides of the division to come back to walking in the light and love of Christ. 
Now, if you're a normal person, you might be thinking, what's a Johannine? <laughs> and what is a Johannine community? And those are great questions. I really appreciate you asking them. Um, well, let's back up a bit. Today, if you pick up a Bible, your Bible is one book. It's a, it's a library of books, but it's just one cohesive thing that contains all the other books. In the early church, in, in the first few centuries of the church, each book of the Bible was its own physical book separated from the others. And churches didn't have access to a fully compiled Bible. That's actually a pretty recent thing. Um, so churches in the early church would have maybe a couple of books. And especially in the early days, they probably only had one of the four gospels, one of the four stories of Jesus's life. It kind of all depended on who founded that church and um, which of the four gospels they had with them or had written themselves. Um, so as Christianity grew, you had different pockets of churches that were influenced by one of the gospels. They might not have even known the other ones existed. And as a result, the focus, the concerns, um, the metaphors, the language of those churches uniquely reflected the gospel that they had access to. The churches I'm talking about specifically tonight were those most influenced by, and some even directly led by John, one of Jesus's best friends and one of the 12 original disciples. John, the guy who the fourth gospel uh, is written by, the gospel of John, same John. And Johannine is like, it's from his name, John, Johannine, it's fine. Uh, the people that John led and the churches he started, the community that he influenced are known as the Johannine community. Someone from that community wrote first, second, and third John to the rest of that community. It's possible that John himself wrote 1 John, um, though he would have had to have been very, very old to still be alive at that point, but it's possible. Scholars are split on whether it was John himself or someone else, but whoever wrote it, it's, it's really clear that they were deeply influenced by John the disciple, um, the gospel of John and the Johannine community. 1 John was written about a decade after the gospel of John was finished. Uh, it was written in large part to, to follow up and to clarify some misunderstandings that arose from people interpreting the gospel of John in various ways. Um, these misunderstandings became serious divisions that were tearing the churches apart. Uh, we'll see later in a book, there is a group of people that, are, that have already left this community over their divide in beliefs. And the church was really small, so people leaving was a big deal. I mean, it's still a big deal. At least I feel like it's a big deal, but it was an even bigger deal then. Within this community, uh, the Johannine community, there was a group of Christians who had come um, out of Judaism. They follow Jesus's teachings. They agree with his ethics. They even believe that he's the Messiah, but they don't believe that he was divine. Um, they believe he was completely and only human and therefore his death had really nothing to do with salvation. Um, to this group, salvation was still only possible through adhering to Jewish law. Opposed to this first group, you have another group coming from a Roman and Greek and pagan background who also followed Jesus, but believe that he was completely divine and not human at all. These believers are influenced by a stream of thought that in a few decades later would become more defined and codified under what today we identify as Gnosticism. But essentially at this time, this group within the early church believed that they had attained some special knowledge that allowed them to transcend above everybody else, to become sinless, 
um, to transcend human nature, eventually to transcend the physical world altogether and become solely spiritual beings as they believed Jesus had done. So you had these two groups on either extreme edge and then a bunch of other people caught in the middle and things were falling apart. The writer of this book is trying to bring these groups back together by clarifying some of the misunderstandings in the gospel of John that led to these divisions. He tries to do this by emphasizing the mysterious nature of, of Christ being both fully human and fully divine and what that means for us. This is a pastor desperately struggling for unity. And so you'll see them continually, continually returning to these themes circling around addressing these two different sides of the argument throughout this book. That's the backstory. Now we're gonna, we're gonna jump into this thing. Uh, I'm gonna read for you the first chapter of this book and then I have just a short reflection for us tonight, okay? Um, so this is chapter one, <laughs> plus the first two verses of chapter two, because whoever went in and put the chapter divisions in the text several hundred, or several hundred, uh, yeah, a couple hundred years after this was written, put the, division, the chapter division in the weirdest place in the middle of a thought. So chapter one actually ends <laughs> at the beginning of chapter two. Anyway, here we go. This is John 1, chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 2. From the very first day we were there, taking it all in, we heard it with our own eyes, saw it with our own, we heard it with our own ears, because you don't hear with eyes, saw it with our own eyes, verified it with our own hands. The word of life appeared right before our eyes. We saw it happen. And now we're telling you in the most somber prose that what we witnessed was incredibly this, the infinite life of God himself took shape before us. We saw it, we heard it, and now we're telling you so you can experience it along with us, this experience of communion with the father and his son, Jesus Christ. Our motive for writing is simply this, we want you to enjoy this too. Your joy will double our joy. This in essence is the message we heard from Christ and are passing on to you. God is light, pure light. In him, there is no darkness at all. If we claim that we experience a shared life with him and continue to stumble around in the dark, we're obviously lying through our teeth. We're not living what we claim. But if we walk in the light, God himself being the light, we also experience a shared life with one another as the sacrificed blood of Jesus, God's son, purges all our sin. If we claim that we're free of sin, we're only fooling ourselves. A claim like that is errant nonsense. On the other hand, if we confess our sins, simply come clean about them, he won't let us down. He'll be true to himself. He'll forgive our sins and purge us of all wrongdoing. If we claim that we've never sinned, we out and out contradict God, make a liar out of him. A claim that only shows off our ignorance of God. I write this dear children to guide you out of sin but if anyone does sin, we have a priest friend in the presence of the father, Jesus Christ, righteous Jesus. When he served as a sacrifice for our sins, he solved the sin problem for good, not only ours, but the whole world's. Okay, so this author says that he's writing so that his readers can share in what he's already shared in, the infinite life of God, which ultimately brings joy. The author then makes their first thesis statement, which is a recurring theme throughout the book. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. I love this metaphor. I think it's really beautiful. And I think it's really helpful um, in understanding our interaction with God. 
And, and the writer begins explaining some of the implications of this um, writing. If we claim that we experience a shared life with him and continue to stumble around in the dark, we're obviously lying through our teeth. We're not living what we claim. If we claim to experience a life shared with light itself and yet stumble around in the dark, we're obviously lying. The evidence of our life contradicts our claim. Humans are like selenium. When we're in the light, we conduct electricity. When we're not, we don't, we can't. If you're claiming to be in the light, but you can't conduct electricity, you're not in the light. But when we do walk in the light, this writer continues, not only do we experience shared life with God, but we become conductors and God's light and love pass through us to one another. And we're able to also experience shared life, a true relationship with one another. We, we experience a shared life and relationship with God and one another as Christ purges all our sin, as Christ purges our darkness from us. Speaking of sin, the author says, if we claim to have freed ourselves of sin or to never have sinned in the first place, we make fools out of ourselves and a liar out of God. We're stumbling in the dark. But if we confess our sins, God forgives and purges our darkness from us and we're walking in the light. Are you tracking with me? Uh, confessing our sins means taking responsibility for, uh, taking ownership of our failures, our limitations, when we've missed the mark and not lived into who God's created us to be. So confession in this sense is not um, a, a saying a list of things that we've done wrong, but it's, it's aligning our hearts and minds with reality. It's seeing things the way that they really are, the good and the bad, our strengths and our weaknesses, not pretending to be anything more or less than we are, and also not holding any of ourselves back. Our tendency, maybe even, uh, maybe even our instinct is to believe that our sins, our shortcomings are what's most true about us. They're what ultimately define us. And if other people simply knew about the things that we did or thought, they'd know how truly broken and toxic and unlovable we really are. And so we try to distance ourselves from our sin as much as possible. Our instincts are to deny and to deflect and try to obscure sin because we feel ashamed about it. We, we feel when we do something wrong, that it means that we're wrong instead of that we've simply done something wrong and missed the mark. But when we come to understand, as the author concludes um, at the end of this chapter, when we come to understand that Christ has already dealt with our sins, he's already taken care of the problem, we're freed to stop hiding. We're freed to see things as they really are. We're freed to own reality. When we own our limitations and mistakes and failures, they don't define us. When we own them, that shame goes away. It loses its power. Ironically, it's when we try to hide or deny that they take over our lives. Aren't you curious what it would feel like to be completely honest about yourself? To trust that Jesus has ultimately already dealt with your sin, enabling you to bring all of you failures, mistakes, shortcomings, and all into the light. You can't live halfway in the light. You can't bring only the good parts of yourself in the light and leave the rest out. But if you bring all of yourself in the light, your darkness is purged from you. So what's stopping you from walking in the light? Walk in the light, courageous and open-handed. 
this is what we're called to. We're not called to perfection. So there's no reason to pretend like you're perfect. We're not called to perfection. We're called to illumination. We're called to be conduits of God's light and love in the world, which like selenium, we can only do when we're in the light. So we'll talk more about what walking in the light means and what it actually looks like in the coming weeks. Uh, But to put a bow on this for now, I'd like to end um, with a prayer for the season of Epiphany uh, from Venite. So let's pray. In the work of your creation, almighty God, you commanded the light to shine out of the darkness. Grant that the light of the gospel of Christ may shine into the hearts of all, dispelling the darkness of unbelief and revealing your glory in the world. You made this day for the works of light and this night for the refreshment of our minds and bodies. Keep us now in Christ, grant us a peaceful evening and a night free from sin and bring us at last to eternal life through the one who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.